0: There is one story that stands out as the greatest story ever told. In this story, you and I aren't just made to feel like participants, we are characters within the story. We are the characters, our world is the setting, and the plot is broken down into five acts. Act one, creation. Act two, rebellion. Act three, rescue. Act four, communion. Act five, celebration. The conflict occurs in the first act. The resolution is introduced in act three and continues through the present and into the future. The greatest story ever told is the story of God and us. Well, it's so good to be here with you guys today. My name is Andrew Bondre and I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads. I wanna say welcome to those of you joining us online. Welcome to those of you at West Campus. It's so good to have you guys with us today. Now, before we jump in, I need to make you guys aware of an upcoming schedule change with our West Campus in particular. Now I interned here at Crossroads back in the year 2012. And during that year, having a physical presence on the west side of Evansville was really uh, just a dream. So it's been really cool to see that dream come to fruition over these last few years and, and now having a campus on the west side of town. Now, it's been cool to talk with Kelly Ward, who leads our ministry team at the West Campus over the last couple weeks about how she sees God continue to work and, and what she believes God is stirring her and the team leaders and the individuals at our West Campus too in the future. Now, the thing that she's let us know is that there's a renewed desire to engage with neighbors. There's a renewed desire to engage with the community on the West Side of Evansville. So in order to help create capacity for people to engage with their neighbors, to um, reach out to their neighbors, we've made the decision that beginning next Saturday at our West Campus, we are going to dismiss our Saturday evening service Now, in this time, our belief is that what is going to happen is we are going to be able to use our Saturday evenings that are now free at the West Side for us to do more community neighborhood outreaches through things like cookouts, just neighborhood hangouts, Christmas caroling, and and other outreach ideas that happen to come about. We believe by doing this, we're also going to have a greater capacity to focus on those four central pieces of a healthy church that Andy talked to us about last week, which were a commitment to God's word, prayer, fellowship, and communion. And we believe that by focusing on those things, we as a church and as a campus on the west side are going to have a greater ability to move forward in strength and stability. So we want to make you guys aware of that at the beginning next week, that Saturday evening service will be dismissed at our West Campus. Now, before we jump in, I do want to go ahead and pray uh, over our West Campus and over our service today. So let's pray. God, you are good. You're a God who's faithful to move like, like you say you move. And we've seen that and we continue to see that. God, I thank you for our West Campus teams, for our leaders and for the individuals that are represented over there, God. And I thank you for their heart to reach their community. And I pray, God, that you will be at work on the West side of our town, even now just stirring hearts to desire to to know you. And I pray that you will give um, those families here at Crossroads that live there just a heightened awareness of the openness to the gospel, God. God, you are good, and I pray right now that as we open up your word to look at this last act in the story of God, God, that you will give us an ability to see you as you are, an ability to receive your truth in a way that maybe we wouldn't apart from your work. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as we come to the last week of the story of God in us, I'm going to start out with a statement that's going to make you say, Andrew, you are Captain Obvious. And I'm going to say, yes, I am Captain Obvious. Thank you for the observation. So the statement is this, the end of stories matter. Okay, I know, big revelation. I spent all week coming to that point of being able to recognize that the end of stories matter. But what I mean by that is that a really good story can be ruined by a bad ending. You know, the the story of a great vacation can be ruined by the story of the end where an eight-hour drive turned into a 16-hour drive because of a sick kid. And then how six months later, your car still smells like that sick kid, right? The, The end of that story can ruin what was a good story. The story of a great first date can be ruined by a misunderstanding about whether or not it was the right time for a first kiss, right? These things can have just a terrible ending, can mess up what happened before that. The same is true in books or in movies. As you watch them, the ending can really ruin what happened before that. Now, the thing that I've found as I've looked at stories is sometimes it's not necessarily a problem with the story or the storyteller as much as it is with the the person listening to the story. A few years ago, I went to go watch the movie The Hobbit when it was released, and I was really excited. If you don't know, The Hobbit is a fantasy novel that was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, and it's like the prequel to The Lord of the Rings. And I loved the Lord of the Rings movies. And this is what I really knew about the books and the movies. I knew that um, there were three Lord of the Rings books, and so they made three Lord of the Rings movies. There was only one Hobbit book. So I went to this movie excited to see how they bridge what happened like before Lord of the Rings to Lord of the Rings. And I start watching this movie and the first hour just captures me with this story and this adventure that was happening. And it made me think back to all that I had seen in the Lord of the Rings. I was getting more and more excited. Two hours in, I found myself still engaged in this story and captured by just the anticipation of how they were going to bridge the gap between what was and what was to come. This story was a great adventure, and I couldn't wait to see how it connected with the Lord of the Rings. But then I got two and a half hours into the movie, and I realized they are nowhere close to bridging the gap between where they were and what I knew about Lord of the Rings, that they weren't going to close the gap. So I got frustrated that the storytellers were just going to rush through this important part of the story and they were just going to like finish it out and tie a bow on it. I'm like, you don't do that to a good story, right? And then the movie ended. I'm like, what on earth? They're flying off on eagle things. I mean, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't tie the story together. So I look over to my brother-in-law and I'm like, what was that? He goes, Andrew, they're making three movies. So what I failed to realize is that there were still five hours of movie to come out in the next two years to finish telling this story. After I understood this context that there were still five more hours to come, I looked back and I watched that movie again and I actually really enjoyed it because I understood how that ending fit in the broader context of the story. And the fact is that as we come to the close of the story of God and us, it's important for us to remember how this fits in the broader context of the story. If we are going to fully appreciate what it is that's going on. We began our journey five weeks ago as we looked at creation and we saw that God created people on purpose and for a purpose. We saw that God placed man into this garden that was perfect and gave him everything he needed to thrive and succeed. But then we saw act two come around and we saw our story take a turn for the worse as mankind rebelled against God. And as mankind rebelled, he was expelled from the garden and expelled from God's presence. And it looked like that could be the end. God would have been completely justified just to end the story right there, but that would have been a terrible ending. God didn't end the story there. In Act 3, we saw that much of the rest of the Bible tells about God's rescue mission. He went on to to rescue and redeem his people, to, to bring them out of their rebellion and bring them back to himself. And then last week we, we saw in the story of communion how God now has filled his people and called them together and sent them on a mission. That's all really good news. But you know, the, the thing that, that I see as I look at this story so far and I look at the world around me is that things that are going right on right now in our world don't seem to line up with the goodness that was there in the beginning. So even though the rescue and, the, and, and communion, that's great news, it's like we're not there yet. See, because we can still look around our world and see the presence and the effect of sin and how it's destroying our world in a way that must force us to say this can't be the end. This isn't the way things were supposed to be. Over the last several weeks, as I've been thinking about this passage, and I knew that, that this last week I was going to be writing this message, I've been like heightened had a heightened awareness to uh, just pain going on in the world around us. A few weeks ago, I heard about a family that's been connected with our church who lost a young child, and when I heard that, I was just struck with this idea that this can't be the way things are supposed to be. This can't be the end. This can't be where hope ends. A week ago on Thursday, I got home from picking my son up from childcare. And shortly after I got home, I heard a bang on my door. And so I went and I opened it. My neighbor came in and she was just distraught as she was telling me that her 14 month old granddaughter had had um, had a head injury that that was caused by something that that just seemed to be evil. And she was now having brain surgery in Cincinnati. And so as we began to pray over those next couple days for our neighbor and for her granddaughter, I again felt that longing in my heart, saying, this can't be the end. This can't be all that there is. This isn't the way things were supposed to be. And when she came over two days later to say the baby didn't make it, I was struck and just my heart was wrenched saying, this can't be the end. I recently had a close friend come and say that she went to have a routine scan and and they found cancer. And again, I look at this and I say that this can't be the way things are supposed to be. I look back at the beginning of the story and things looked much better then. How is it that this stuff is still happening? How is it that the presence of sin is still wreaking havoc on our lives? You see, as we look at the world around us and we see the suffering... We see the pain. We see the senseless acts that bring about pain and suffering. We have to be able to recognize that this isn't the way things are supposed to be. But you see, this isn't the end. We aren't to that point yet. And what we're going to see today is that the end of our story is the perfect ending. We're going to see that there's hope beyond what we see in this life. And this hope brings about transformation in our life. So this is the thing I want us to see as we jump into our story today about the hope we see at the end. The hope of what is to come is a living hope that changes how we live here and now. And whenever we talk about hope here, we're not talking about wishful thinking. We're talking about how we have a confident expectation that God is going to do what God said he's going to do. And that gives us an ability to desire the goodness of God as we move forward. Now, as we move into this last act, we are going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you or under your seat, depending on where you are sitting. This is literally the last two chapters in the Bible, so it may be easiest just to start on the very back and turn back a few pages to find it, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, before we jump into this passage, I wanna give us some background on the book of Revelation so we can help figure out where we are now in this story. First, we know that the book of Revelation was written by a guy named John, and John was one of Jesus's best friends during his time here on earth. And John had been there at the end of Jesus' life as he had died and he had been raised from the dead and then went to be with the Father. And Jesus gave John and Jesus' other followers a command to go and and tell the world about Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, we find John now as an old man who spent his entire life doing exactly that. And as he comes to the end of his life, he's found himself exiled to an island called Patmos because... He was sharing his faith because he was doing what Jesus had said he was going to do. Now, whenever we look at the book of Revelation, the fact is that there may be no other book in the Bible that Christians like to fight about more than the book of Revelation. Now, if I were to create like a caricature, you know, like how they do those drawings at um, the fall festival where they make a picture of you that you can kind of see how they got it. But then again, it's like, okay, that's not me. So I'm going to give you two pictures of people and their approaches to Revelation that are just caricatures. I know there's a lot in between here, but it seems like there are two camps we could throw people in. Either one, the people that completely avoid the book of Revelation because it's confusing, it's hard to understand, and it's really scary if you get into it, all right? So if you're in that camp, welcome. I promise you we're not going to get too scary today. Now, on the other side, there are people who are completely obsessed with the book and they are currently pulling charts out of the back of their Bible to show you where I am wrong as I teach today. And if that's you today, I want to let you know I'm going to disappoint you because we are not getting into charts today, okay? I'm sorry. I'm not actually sorry, though, because whenever we look at the book of Revelation, what I want us to see is that the book of Revelation was written to real people in a real time in history, that we're going through real suffering to offer a real living hope that would change the way they lived here and now. The fact is that the book of Revelation was not written for us to argue and speculate about different things. It was written to give us hope, to give us a confident assurance of what is to come and how that changes how we live here and now. So while there are many important things we could talk about throughout the book of Revelation, I'm not going to get into all of that. See, the book of Revelation is commonly believed was written during the reign of a Roman emperor named Domitian. And Domitian was the first Roman emperor to offer like state-sponsored persecution of the church, which meant it was the first time that there was a concerted effort by the Roman government to destroy the church. And so John wrote this book to a group of believers that were being attacked, a group of believers who were being crushed by the government. And so as we approach the book of Revelation, this is what I want us to see about our reading of Revelation. It's this, if our reading of Revelation does not result in a renewed hope that changes how we live here and now, we're missing something. Well, there are tons of things we could talk about in the book of Revelation. We are going to zero in on the last two chapters because the fact is that everything that happens before that is building up to this point to show us how this story ends. And as we come to the end, we see that Satan has been crushed, that Satan has been destroyed, and that God's judgment has been poured out on evil on earth. And then we see chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, open up like this. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. You know, it's sometimes common for us to think about the book of Revelation and to think about heaven that is to come and to think about it's a place that we float away to or it's a place that we escape to. But rather than it being a place that we escape to, here we see that, that the end story, how our story closes out, is actually with a new heaven and a new earth coming down to earth. We see a new heaven and a new earth coming down in the form of a city that John calls the New Jerusalem. Here we can look back to the beginning of our story as it started out in a garden that was ready to be cultivated and developed and it was ready to be built upon. It was a place where perfection could be experienced, but it was still a little different. But here our story ends not in a garden, but in a place, a city of perfection, a completed city. And as we look at this picture of a new heaven and a new earth coming down, I want us to see that that a piece of our hope is in heaven and earth being reunified. It's simply put like this, that Christians have a hope of heaven being reunified with earth. And this hope is something to celebrate. In verse three, we see John really build upon this idea. You see, generally we think about heaven up here as God's space and earth over here as man's space. And we see that those two things just, they don't go together. But what we see in the very beginning in the garden is that God desired to dwell with his people. He would come down and he would spend time with Adam and Eve. That's the impression we get from Genesis chapter three, verse eight, as it said that, that God came to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. But then we see that, that whenever mankind sinned, sin really did corrupt the world. So that heaven and earth could not go together. They weren't compatible. So what do we see God do in the story? We see him ultimately call a people to himself, called the people of Israel, and he calls them to build something called a tabernacle. Now a tabernacle is just like a fancy tent and it was like a a portable temple. It was the place where God would come and dwell among his people. It was the place where sacrifice was made on behalf of sin so that a little taste of heaven could come together with earth. It was a place where God's dwelling could be experienced here on Earth. Later on, we see that that tabernacle became a more permanent temple. But we see that, that it still wasn't complete. It was still just one little slice here on Earth. The Hebrew word for tabernacle was translated into this Greek word we translate as "dwell." And we see in John chapter 1, verse 14, that when Jesus came on earth, he came to dwell or to tabernacle here on earth. So that, again, heaven and earth could come together in an interesting way. So that God's dwelling place could be experienced here and now. We see this accomplished in Christ going to the cross so we can experience just, just a little taste of God's presence here and now. Last week, we saw in communion that God actually sent his spirit to dwell in his church so that now, each and every one of us, we, we have the opportunity to experience God's presence a little bit. But even as we experience God's presence, like we saw earlier, we can look around in our world and say things still aren't the way they should be. Things still don't line out the way that they should, they still don't seem like they are complete. But the picture here at the end is of heaven and earth fully coming together so that the presence of God is experienced in all its fullness at all time. This is because the the presence of sin has now been eradicated from this place called the new Jerusalem as heaven and earth come together. As we look at this and we look at God dwelling with this people, we see a reason why we can celebrate in light of this hope. And it's this, we celebrate because God is forever with his people. This is a time when we are fully aware of God's presence and we're fully able to experience the goodness of his presence. But as we move on into verse four, we see that that God's love and care for his people is not an abstract concept. Let's pick up in verse four, as John writes this, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. In Revelation chapter 21, we see that this picture of the end is not one of God taking us out of this earth up to a place of mere bliss so that we forget everything that's happened before. But instead, it's a place where God actually cares about our pain. It's a picture of of God wiping away every tear. This picture amazes me as we see that the God who spoke the world into existence... The God who breathed life into man. The God who went on a rescue mission after his people to rescue and reconcile them. The God who who sent his spirit to live among his church is a God who cares for us in the real pain of life. Doesn't just say, forget about it. But he comes and he wipes away every tear from their eyes. But what's cool is that God doesn't stop there. You see, because in the second half of that verse, we see that God not only wipes away tears, but he removes every reason for those tears being there. We see that death is destroyed once and for all. We see that crying is no more. We see that pain is no more. We see that grieving is no more. And as we look at this picture of what is to come, the challenge has come to me as I've looked at this text this week is simply this, and it's a call for us to, to live with the end in mind. You've heard the the thing, start with the end in mind or begin with the end in mind, which is a great way to approach projects. But the fact is that this project called The Life of Andrew Bondra, I failed way too many times for me to just like go back to the beginning. So instead of beginning, I'm just gonna start focusing on living with the end in mind because I think that that will transform how we live here and now. I mean, let's just think about this for a minute. If heaven is a place where every tear is wiped away, What would it look like for us to be a people that here on earth were known as those who would come and wipe away the tears of those who are hurting? If heaven is a place with no more grieving, what would it look like for us to be the people of God here and now who would grieve with those who grieve because we know that this grieving isn't going to last forever? What would it look like for us as the people of God here and now to be a people who saw the pain of those around us and chose to get close to that pain instead of running from it because we know that pain isn't going to last forever. To be a people who would cry with those who are crying. Church, hear me, that whenever we become a people who live with the end in mind, it has a direct implication for how we live here and now. And it doesn't mean that we run away from pain and suffering. It means that we can press through it because we know that God is one. You see, C.S. Lewis writes about this, because you guys have probably heard this idea before that that you could become so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, but that's not the picture we see throughout history. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. The hope of heaven is one that whenever we fix our attention on it, it changes the way we live here and now. As I was talking to one of my brothers-in-law about this this week, he, he talked to me about five things that stand out to him about how that changes the way we live in light of eternity here and now. So I wanna give those to you and kind of unpack these ideas. What does it look like for you and I to live, light, or, or live in light of eternity here and now? And the first thing is this, we remember God's story. We remember that in the beginning of this story, we see God's goodness and God's greatness on display in creation. We remember that in the midst of rebellion, we see both God's holiness and God's grace at work as he chose not just to crush man, but to actually come after man. As we see in the rescue, as God spends his life pursuing man. As we see throughout history that God kept running after, we see the steadfast love of God, the love of God that goes on and on and on. And as we look at God's story, we also see in in act four and communion that God gave his church a mission and that he calls us to be part of that here and now. And we also see here as we come to the close that God offered us a hope that things do get better. He gives us a hope that things don't end here and now, but that there is a celebration to come that changes how we live here and now. Now, the second thing for what it looks like to live in light of eternity is that we lament. Now, that's not a word we use very often in our society, and it's a word that's kind of foreign to us. But to lament is to call what is evil, evil. You see, sometimes I think we have the tendency to think that we have to put icing on top of the things that are evil in our world and think, ah, no, it's not that bad. But the fact is that in Scripture we see again and again God's people crying out to him as they saw evil, injustice, sickness, suffering, and pain in this world. And when we lament, we say to God, God, I see this stuff around me. I see injustice. I see evil. I see pain. And it's not okay. And then we call for God to be faithful to who he says he is and has shown himself to be throughout history. Lamenting was so important in scripture that there's a book called Lamentations where Jeremiah spends the entire book lamenting what he saw happening among his people and among his home in Jerusalem. Now, the third thing we see is that we enjoy. If we are to live life in light of eternity, it means that we enjoy the taste of God's goodness that we get here and now. That includes family, It includes food, it includes friends, it includes any taste of God's goodness that we have here and now. We enjoy that because we recognize that that's a good gift from our God and it's only a foretaste of what is to come. The fourth thing for what it looks like to live in light of eternity is to work. We work to see God's kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Just like we saw in the beginning in creation, we see that God's physical creation is good. And that because it is good, it adds dignity and worth to the work that we do here and now as we show the rest of the world what our God is like in and through the way that we work. And we show God's loving care for creation no matter what our industry is, whether it's the medical field or it's banking or it's landscaping, whatever it is, we have the opportunity to show with the way that we work the goodness of our God. And the fifth thing that we do is we hope. We hope that there is more beyond this. And I want to remind us again that hope is not wishful thinking, but hope is a confident expectation of what is to come. There is hope that the celebration that is to come will bring healing to the pain and suffering we experience now we hope because there is a future without the presence or the power or the penalty of sin there is a future that is greater than what we experience here and now living life in light of eternity means that we live in expectation of what god says he is going to do now john goes on to write this in verses 5 and 6 or 5 and 6 he says then the one seated on the throne said look I am making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The party that is to come is one in which God is making everything new. And if you saw there in verse six, it's also one with an open invitation for people to come. It's not a party in which God's trying to keep people out, but it says, hey, anyone who's thirsty can come. It's a party that's open to us. It's a party that's open to our world. John goes on to write this in verses 7 and 8. He says, the one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'll tell you what, this week, whenever I read that line there, the one who conquers, I was kind of defeated because over the last few months, I haven't felt much like a conqueror. In fact, more than feeling like a conqueror, I've kind of felt like a whipped puppy more days than than not. So I really had to think about this. What is it that John's saying? Who is it that's a conqueror? And as I think about what John has said throughout this book, I think that the one who is the conqueror is the one who continues to come back to Jesus and admits that that they can't do it on their own. The one who is a conqueror is not one who conquers in their own strength, but they are the ones who recognize that only through the conquering grace of Jesus can we conquer anything in this life. The one who conquers is the one who continues to come back for that living water. Now, verse 8 there can also make us uncomfortable as it shows God's justice coming upon those who continue in their sin. But the fact is, guys, we've got to see that that God's justice coming is good because it means that sin will finally be removed from this earth forever. And so will all of the effects of sin. You see, what we see here is the fact that if we continually tell God we don't want him, that we would rather live in sin than receive from him, God's going to give us what we ask for. He's gonna allow us to live on forever in the presence with the effects of sin. And we'll experience that pain and suffering that comes with that forever. So we can actually celebrate that God's justice is coming. As I've read the book of, of Revelation, got there to the end over the last couple of weeks, the verse I keep coming back to is the verse I want to close on and it's Revelation 22, verse 17. Here is what John writes. "says Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life or the one who desires take the water of life freely. This verse is offered hope as you see that call just to come. A call to come and experience the living water, which brings about that living hope, that confident expectation that there is more to come beyond this life, that what we see now is not all that there is. And as we've seen that and we've talked about this series as a staff where we thought we'd be remiss if we didn't give you guys an opportunity to respond to this invitation. So what we're gonna do here in a minute is we're all gonna to stand together. We're gonna to bow our heads, we're gonna close our eyes. And I'm gonna offer two invitations. One is to those of you who, who've never experienced this living hope before, but you hear about this hope and there's something inside you that stirs and says, I want that. I believe there's something beyond this world. I believe there's something beyond this life. If you haven't experienced Jesus before and you want to today, we're going to give you the invitation to come. Or if you're here today and and you've experienced this before, but right now you're in a season where it seems more like a distant memory than a reality where living hope isn't being experienced because of life circumstances or because of things that are going on around you rather than a living hope. It just feels like you're stuck in a pit, you're stuck in a rut. If that's you, we want you to come forward and receive prayer today as well. So right now what I'm gonna ask you to do is stand, whether you're here or you're at West Campus. going I ask that you bow your heads and you close your eyes. And I want to read this verse to you one more time. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. If you're here today and you've never experienced this living hope, I invite you now, raise your hand. We'd love to pray with you today. If your desire is to be baptized today, we've got everything you need. If that's you today and you hear this word come and you feel something tugging at your heart, raise your hand. If you're here today and you've experienced this living hope before, but right now it just feels like you're stuck in a rut and you don't feel that anymore and you want a chance to experience this living hope again, I invite you to raise your hand wherever you're at in the room. Thank you guys. Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna pray over all of us. And if you raised your hand or if you didn't and you know you needed to, I want you to just grab the person next to you and come forward now let's pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this picture of a future that is to come that gives us a hope that is a sure foundation. Father, right now we cling to the fact that this is a real and living hope, that what is to come is greater than what is now. And that the gift of what is to come is a gift that you give freely. So God, right now, work in our hearts, work in our minds to step forward and receive this gift without fear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.